Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is thrilled for the second year in a row to be able to send you to... Louder Than Life. Here in Louisville, Kentucky, we've got four-day wristbands for a winner, somebody. September 26th through the 29th. Go ahead and put it on your calendar. The Highland Festival Grounds in Louisville, Kentucky. The lineup is insane. I'll throw a few, you throw a few. Ready? I'm going to go Slayer, Disturbed, Motley Crue, Judas Priest, Slipknot. Corn, um... Mastodon, Sum 41, Clutch, Sponge, Body Count. Tom Morello, Hailstorm, Skillet. You know I listened to Skillet when I was a teenager? Did not know They that. were a Christian band first. Did you know that? No. Yeah, they had this record called Hey You, I Love Your Soul. I'm going to be at their set screaming for songs off of that record. Did you listen to P.O.D.? Oh, yeah. P.O.D.'s going to be there, too, right? Right, yeah. P.O.D.'s oh, boom! There. Here comes the boom! Yeah. Here comes the... Oh, yeah. And they play ping pong in the video? Yeah. And Slayer, they were a Christian band. I'm just <laughs> kidding. They have a song called Evil Has No Boundaries. But they're also uh, playing Five Finger Death Punch is playing uh, Disturbed Chevelle. We, we, don't, we don't have time. We don't have time to run through the whole list. It's You're going to have to go check days, it out. Yeah. Hit the notes, the show notes, click on the link, and then if you want wristbands, which you do, duh, uh, here's what you got to do. You got to send us an email to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com and tell us your favorite music festival story so far. Something you've experienced, seen, done at a music festival uh, because, you know, we're the story guys. We like to encourage you to keep telling stories. So tell a story to us and you could be going to make more stories at Louder Than Life September 26th through the 29th of this year. Uh, whew. I'm ready. It's the largest metal bourbon festival on the planet. It's a big freaking deal, and you're going to be there. We're going to be there. Just send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Hey. Get involved in the show. It's weirdthestoryguys at gmail.com. Like Mac, Mac writes the show. Uh, I am a Gen Xer who gladly allows people to define me by grunge stereotypes. Yes. But when there is talk about super groups from that Seattle era, I get a little confused by the scene and the players. Can you walk us through Mother Love Bone, Temple of the Dog, Mad Season, etc.? Well, sir... Uh, Mac, I think we can do that, but Mr. Murdoch, I am tagging you in to be the spokesperson for your generation. That's right, because uh, Sunshine on My Shoulder by John Denver was the number one song in America when I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Or on the country charts, it was Behind Closed Doors by Charlie Rich. Uh, Google it, so you'll know. Which Seattle group do you prefer? Well, for me, Supergroup has a specific definition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me. So I was aware of... I wasn't aware of everything that came before, but I was aware of Pearl Jam. I was aware of Soundgarden. Um, so Temple of the Dog was the first one that I really, I was like really surprised. I was like, oh, these guys have a group together without knowing anything about how they kind of were, they were basically in each other's bands before to begin right, with. Right, right. Such, such an interesting version of the super group because they sort of weren't a super group until later, but we're, we're going to get into that, right? So I remember hearing Hunger Strike at some point as yeah. a teenager and being very confused by who was in what band because yeah. it sounded like two guys from two different bands were on the same song. That all seemed very confusing. And, and so here's what I thought. I thought before we get into all of that and start to pull the threads, what we probably need to do is a full history of grunge. We've like really never done anything like that on the show, so I thought, are you, are you up for that? 
Yeah, as long as I don't feel like Mac does and feel like I've been defined by a some type of stereotype or some type of dress that I'm supposed to be wearing. Do you feel defined by your, your Gen X moniker? I do feel defined by the Gen X monitor because now we're less interesting. And, <laughs> and, and, and now, and now People have moved past writing about it and talking about it? Right. Because, well, because now they talk about the generations that are younger than us. And initially it was like, oh, the millennials have nowhere to go. They're in the basements. They have no money. And it's like, right. now that's actually not true. Um, so exactly what did we do as a generation? I don't really know, but I feel like I'm going to get picked on here. Because uh, no, no, no. I don't we, think you're going to get picked on. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm planning to approach this as, as a love letter to Seattle. Did you ever wear like those, I don't know what we call them, the, the underwear underneath your pants, pants? Like boxers? No, no, the pants. They were like the big, long... Long what? underwear? Yeah. Did you ever wear long <laughs> underwear and have a pair of shorts over them and have a long flannel shirt wrapped around your waist with a t-shirt on? Did you ever I, wear... I, I, I did not do that. No, you didn't. <laughs> and and I don't think that I ever did. Yeah. So but I, I saw that's what it is. It's probably worth mentioning if this is the first episode of the show you've ever listened to. So Murdoch and I are been best friends for a long, long time, but we do have a 10 year age gap. So we are very squarely in different generations for the larger conversation. So I am an, I'm what I would consider an elder millennial and you are squarely Gen X. I'm just Gen X. And, and so here's, here's what I think we do, right? Let's start just with the first time you remember hearing grunge, something described as grunge. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do. I was reading, uh, it was, it was not in, an American publication. It was an international mm-hmm. publication. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to this. This was a whole part of the ploy. Right, right. And it was Mud Honey. And this was how I discovered Mud Honey. And they they described their sound as grunge. Grungy. Right. And so um, I went and bought Super Fuzz Big Muff after that. And then discovered at that time that that's named after a guitar pedal, which ended up being the only guitar pedal I would play. Oh, for, yeah. Um, and then... That's like 92 or something. And then I came home from college that fall. And this is how long ago it was. That's 32 years ago. <laughs> um, was that you physically got Target circulars. You got the actual uh-huh. in the mail and uh-huh. you look at it. And I remember I got home that Christmas and I opened it up and there was just kids dressed exactly like I described earlier with the words <laughs> grunge on the Target circulars. So I, I got the way that the international press was looking at this, the, yeah. the music scene and then I got that, oh, this is how we're all dressing now. So I was eight or nine when grunge really took hold. And I was being raised by a preacher. So I, I didn't get it straight in the veins initially like you did. So I was thinking about how I became aware. And you know what? I, I, I had to think about it for a while. I think what it was. I'm not ready. Was Weird Al. It's freaking Weird Al. <laughs> he did that teen spirit parody, Smells Like Nirvana, remember? And I was mesmerized by the way it sounded. You know, because it's basically yeah. a carbon copy of the right. original. So I, it was Smells Like Teen Spirit, like it was for a lot of America for me. But it was this slightly altered version uh, <laughs> that, that Weird Al had done. Slightly. Yeah. Um, y- you could say so. I bought Nevermind by accident in the fall of 1991. And I'd already, I guess I'd already gotten Pearl Jam's 10 by this point. Whichever one came out first, I got that one first. Okay. But, but I had both of those. Well, we've talked before on the show that there are a lot of assumptions made when you're a young music fan. So when I was a kid learning about grunge, 
I had a whole plethora of things that I thought were true that maybe weren't necessarily true just about music in general, right? I, I thought bands were just all a bunch of friends who were on an adventure together, you know, like it was never calculated. Yeah. Everybody loved each other. I thought that everybody wrote their own songs. I thought that everyone loved the music and that business was always secondary. All these things are things that weren't necessarily true, right? Have you watched Guitar Moves? It's Matt Sweeney, who used to be in Chavez. He's played with Bonnie Prince Billy. Oh, no, I haven't watched that. He played uh, Iggy Pop. He was in Iggy Pop's band he's back anyway so it's a little he started it a couple years ago and it kind of went under and now it's back and he's putting the whole episodes up and it's episodes with guitar players so okay keith richards wow for god's sakes um dean ween um people like that but at one point he interviews freaking scarface from the ghetto boys (laughs) and you and and from that if you didn't know scarface was not an MC like Scarface. Right. Sure, he's an MC, but right. Scarface knows how to play music. So his biggest first musical thing was Kiss. And I have something in common with Scarface, which What's I that? didn't know. I didn't know they were human. <laughs> you said this before. I love this idea that you you encountered this band and thought they might be space aliens, and, and that like everything with them, even though that was fictitious, they had this thing that was sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh-huh. And even as a kid, I thought that is what must be the most amazing lifestyle to live because those guys in the kabuki makeup do it. Yeah, right. And if they can do it, uh, I can do it too one day. So I would add to this list of things that I thought were true that that weren't is that I thought that the whole idea of grunge was based on authenticity. That like it was this very yeah. authentic thing that had not been manipulated by a marketing department at all. And I think that's born out of some naivete of being a youth when it came to fruition. A but youth. Uh, yeah, I was way off. Uh, so because the invention of grunge is the story basically of a couple of dudes figuring out the intersection of art and commerce in a very deliberate way. And it really cannot be separated from the story of Sub Pop Records. No, it can't. And the where I got became familiar with, with that is that I saw the Sub Pop 100 compilation like in a store and that kind of puts some things together but it was college and i had a record store that sponsored my oh, radio show right on. and the the buyer there her name was pyra lots of love to wherever the hell she went <laughs> she would just give me a freaking milk crate of like 100 cds 50 cds oh, man. the dream and it was all so like from there i learned about where those bands came from yeah, sure. like green river and mother right. love and other things we talk about or whatever but like I would have no idea that about who Monster Magnet was or any yeah. of those other sort of things that were kind of around the peripheral of that. Um, and but there was something about I got all these sub pop records, and immediately there was sort of like the stamp of approval. If by it's it. on like, sub pop, it, it didn't suck. It was right. sort of like Matador was right, right. Okay, so this all starts with speaking of college radio. It all starts with a college student named Bruce Pravitt, who like both you and I had that gig at a college radio station at one point in his life. He went to Evergreen State in Olympia, Washington. Right. And he has a show there he calls Subterranean Pop. So you see how Sub Pop came from there. And he starts to go deep on underground independent music. And he creates a zine to cover the the tunes and the bands that he likes. And that is also called Subterranean Pop. So that's where that's headed. Yeah. By the fourth issue, they drop it. 
uh, they just make it Sub Pop. They shorten the name. And then they start alternating issues with compilation tapes of underground rock bands. And in 86, he starts trying to turn this venture into a record label, but he's got a problem, a very common problem for young music fans. Uh, he doesn't have the cash. Right. So that's where Jonathan Poe and he enters the picture. Uh, Jonathan and Bruce are radio buddies. They go back to earlier in their radio careers and their time together at that college radio station. Uh, later, they'll share the commonality of continuing to find ways to immerse themselves in, in local music. Bruce was writing about it and putting it out on tape, as we've already described, but Jonathan was booking it. He was bringing the bands onto stages, and specifically at a place called the Rainbow Tavern. And so one night, he books this band at the Rainbow Tavern named Sound Garden. And this is Jonathan speaking, a quote from him, direct quote, quote, I walked up to the front of the stage after and introduced myself to Chris, and I said, my name is Jonathan, I do the booking down here, and I got to tell you, that was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. And so Jonathan is obviously enamored with Soundgarden. So enamored, he's going to put two grand of his own money down. He'll get their first single and an EP out on Sub Pop Records. And so this creates this relationship between Jonathan and Bruce, and over the next few years, they will start raising money together for this operation, and Jonathan will become a full partner in the record label. And if we can just rewind what Brian just said, $2,000. $2,000. Right. But before we get into talking about Soundgarden, the band, and what comes all after that, there's another band that's super important to our story here that you may not know, and that is Green River. Were you ever into them? It's thanks to thanks to the buyer at the Disc Exchange in Knoxville, Tennessee, Pyra. <laughs> I remember I saw it, and I listened to it, and it was very clear. I was like, oh... So that's Mark Arm from Mudhoney singing. Like, or, you know, right, it's like, right. or I started looking at the liner notes and I started realizing, like, oh, the, like, Jeff Amet, I guess, is in. Yeah, yeah. So that, right. That's the whole deal. This yeah. band is important for two reasons. It will split. It's not around for that long, but it will then split into two camps. One will go on to be part of Pearl Jam. One will go on to be part of Mudhoney. But it's most important for our story right this instant because most rock history dudes will point to this band as being the first band to ever really be described as grunge. Right, right. And Bruce often gets the credit for inventing or at least popularizing the term. In a catalog write-up for he did, attempting to describe the band's sound on the EP that Sub Pop will release for them. But the first noted instance of referring to a Seattle band as grunge actually looks to have came from Mark Arm, who is the founder of Green River and now the singer of Mudhoney. Himself, when describing his old band in a letter back in 1981, in his letter, Arm writes, I hate Mr. Epp and the calculations. Pure grunge, pure noise, pure shit. Yeah, so there becomes this conversation around what does grunge really mean and why is it grunge and what how does it actually describe the music? But it makes sense that Bruce will take control of the narrative a bit because Bruce and Jonathan want this thing that they're doing to be successful. And they start to realize that if it's going to happen, it's going to take more than just good music. Right. Bruce and Jeff start to study successful record labels. So This what, is fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the DNA for rock and roll beginning your record label. It's smart. It's also a little bit, I don't think devious isn't the right term, but it is calculated. But it's also, it's also like good business connecting with your community, yeah. your arts yeah. community yeah. that's yeah. local. So what, yeah. did, what did Motown do? Right. What did SST do? Right. They, they figured out that virtually every successful movement in the, in the rock music of any time, of any kind of popular music, had a regional basis at some point. And they realize that they're in this unique position where they can take sub pop and make it about Seattle and make Seattle a scene. But to do that, Seattle has to have a sound. 
right? Because Motown had a sound and SST had a sound. How do you make a city sound a certain way? You get the same goddamn guy to make all the records. That's what you do. And so the guy in this case is Jack and Dino. And so Jack was in a band called Skin Yard in the 80s. And in that band is Matt Cameron, who's played um, drums, not only Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. He's um, in Pearl Jam still now. Yeah, yeah. And so this is Jack on his website describing what he had done in his career. Since 86, I've worked on over 600 records for bands from 14 <laughs> countries on four Lord. continents. <laughs> for 800 bucks, you know? <laughs> yeah, right? Y- you've probably heard of one or two of these records. I was the guy in the engine room during the early voyages of the Battleship Grunge in the late 80s. Many of the early releases that Seattle put Sub Pop on the map have my name on them. Mud Honey, Nirvana, Tad, Soundgarden, L7, Mark Lanigan, Hot Hot Heat. Jack taught himself how to engineer. And that made him cheap. And fast, <laughs> because there was no overthinking it, right? So famously, he made Nirvana's Bleach in 30 hours for $606.17 using a reel-to-reel 8-track machine. And of course, when Nirvana's Nevermind explodes in 91, now the whole world is trying to figure out where they came from. In terms like Seattle Sound and grunge, and they get bandied around. And But Bruce and Jeff had laid the groundwork for this in another sneaky way. This is what you were talking about. Yeah. Right? What did they do? Um, they knew it would take some time to get attention to the press, so they tried to break them in the UK. Yeah, so they, they spend all this time getting another people in another country to pay attention to to validify yeah and you, validate what's happening in Seattle. Do you know who else is from that part of the country that had to break before he broke in America? That's Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. This is this isn't the first time this has been done. Yeah. So, uh, of course, as is the case with any and all categorization, the scene that the word grunge will go on to describe absolutely hates this modifier. And a lot of people are going to argue with you and say that like the sound of the bands it originally described is not anywhere near the sound that it will eventually become known for. But for our purposes, grunge continues to be the fastest way to point to early 90s Seattle-based or inspired rock music. So that's how we're going to recognize the term now. And to be even clearer and more nerdier about this, that's why we have a podcast about these things. I googled the term gr- grunge bands and I got this. Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Allison Chains, Mud Honey, Screaming Trees, Green River and Mother Love Bone. Okay, so now, now I think we can talk about the groups themselves. Cuz thanks Google. And probably the clearest and easiest way to do that is to start first with the last of the names you mentioned, which is Mother Love Bone. Yeah. Big shout out to my buddy Derek, who is the largest Andrew Wood fan I've ever met in my life. So you mentioned that when Green River had ideological differences, Mark Arm, who's now in Mudhoney, started Mudhoney, and the two of those other guys would become part of Pearl Jam. Those two guys, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amet, have another stop along the way first before Pearl Jam, and that is Mother Lovebone. Yes, and Mark and Stone and Jeff, they have ideological differences. What that means, what should be explained here is that they had different ideas around fame and big business. Uh, Stone and Jeff had no qualms about getting noticed and getting paid. And so when things don't work out with Mark, they decide to find a singer who has a whole lot of charisma and potential to get him there. And that's where they come across this guy in the scene named Andrew Wood. And despite all the other big names and personalities that come out of the scene eventually, Andrew Wood might be the most important and definitive and probably 
under really uh, underrated or not spoken about of that entire scene. Oh, for sure. And he was, he was like kind of an outlier of the scene. So you described the fashion earlier of what grunge comes to be known as with the flannel shirt wrap yeah. around your waist and such, right? This is not what Andrew Wood is doing. No. This is a quote from Mike McCready of Pearl Jam talking about him later. Andy carried himself around Seattle like a rock star. I'd see him walking around with scarves and glasses. That is very not grunge. Uh, Seattle people thought they were cooler than that, but he just didn't care. He carried himself in this glorious 1970s way, and he's super funny. I didn't know him that well, but from what I recall, being in the audience at the Mother Love Bone shows, he'd say things like, if everyone in the bag doesn't come up to the front, we're going to do the entire Peter Chris solo record. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's funnier to read it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, He finishes the quote by saying, it was this Seattle sarcasm where we were all like, oh, okay. That's hilarious. Yeah, but Wood, he has been in Seattle um, since the 80s. As a teenager, he was in a band with his brother that was called Malfunction. That spelled kind of funny. Um, Andy loved arena rock. This was what the thing was with the scarves and the, the sunglasses. He wanted to be like Freddie Mercury or Paul Stanley. And fun side note, he shared an apartment with Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, uh, which is a crazy two guys to live together. And so when Stone and Jeff are free of Green River and Andrew's on a break from Malfunction, they start jamming together. And they pretty quickly get interest from record labels. And the band can feel that they are poised on the edge of something. But Andrew has been plagued by drug addiction for years, and he does his first stent rehab before he is even 20 years old. And they, they can just feel this traction. This mother love bone might be a thing that's going to make it. They can just like sort of all feel it. And it's starting to go. And so Andrew knows. He knows the problem are, are the drugs. He's trying to get control of this, actively trying to get clean. And so the band is sort of in this holding pattern, waiting for their first record to be released. That's an Apple that will... That's an Apple. That's an album that will come to be known as Apple. And unfortunately, Andrew doesn't make it. So he dies. He's 24. Doesn't even make it to 27. He dies a few weeks before the Apple record drops. The heroin overdose sends him into a coma and eventually he passes away and he was discovered by his girlfriend. And the aftermath is just brutal for these guys. So they're all young guys in their 20s. They're living in Seattle. They're, you know, creating something that feels important and becomes very important, right? And they... It's it's something their parents don't understand. That don't they don't believe in it. They'll admit that all of this hits them super duper hard. And there's a great oral history of what comes next that was done by Rolling Stone. You can find this in the show notes. But read that quote from Chris Cornell. Yeah, here's the quote. Um, I don't really remember doing much else after the funeral other than being swept away in the grief of the moment. But after a couple of weeks, I wrote two songs, Say Hello to Heaven and Reach Down for Andy. I don't remember recording those demos, but I remember the ideas and writing the lyrics because they were really different and they involved a real person. That wasn't something I'd normally do. I'd normally write a character that was part me, part fiction. But these lyrical, these lyrics uh, specifically reflected Andy and my feelings about him, and I didn't let anything else in. It was precious. So Chris Cornell will demo out a couple of these songs, and he'll play all the instruments himself. And then he passes them around to his friends in the scene. A good chunk of those friends, like Jeff and Stone and a guy named Mike McCready, are busy trying to put a band together this time. And so this idea gets floated to all of them to say, hey, what if we recorded some of this stuff together? But this is the early 90s, so you didn't really just do this thing like you do now with Spotify where you just 
put out a single song from your band, right? You, you invest the time and energy, so you're going to invest the time and energy in a full album. So they decide to make this whole record. So Chris grabs his drummer at, in Soundgarden at the time, Matt Cameron, these three other guys who are trying to put something together. They all come together, and Chris will start writing lyrics to musical ideas that he gets from Jeff and Stone, and they start to piece together what will become Temple of the Dog. Here's another quote from the oral history. This one's from Jeff Amet. We had our own little incestuous scene, but we were really cynical about what was going on in the rest of the world. We had no idea if the songs would be heard on a big level, but after what happened with Andy, we just didn't have the tools to deal with it. My mom and dad were a thousand miles away. I didn't have anyone around that I was used to talking to about that stuff. Making that record really helped that process, and it helped us come to term with losing a friend. And this Temple of the Dog project is basically a bunch of guys in the early 90s who don't know what to do with their feelings going through the grieving process together. And Jeff and Stone and Mike bring in this guy around this same time to audition for this other band that they're creating. And that guy is a gas station attendant who comes up from San Diego, and his name is Ed. Yeah. Uh, or Mookie Blaylock. It just depends on how you like the story to go. So the story goes, they had nine songs for Temple of the Dog record, and they needed a tenth one. Chris had this idea for a song he called Hunger Strike, but he couldn't come up with a second verse. So while he is working on it in the studio one day, this kid who had auditioned for Stone and Jeff is in the corner of the studio, scribbling in a notebook, waiting to practice with that other band, so he gets up shyly and starts adding a vocal part. And this will become the recording debut of Eddie Vedder. Right. Uh, this is where I think people get confused, right? Because Soundgarden happens well before Pearl Jam, and Temple of the Dog happens before Pearl Jam's 10. Right. And when the Temple of the Dog record comes out, no one actually really cares about it because nobody really knows who these bands are. So chances are, if you're listening to this now, you actually didn't hear Temple until a couple of years after the record came out. Yeah. Because suddenly someone, the sub-pop magic starts to happen. Grunge becomes a thing. Nirvana happens. And now somebody at AM Records, can you imagine being the guy at AM Records who's like going through the old catalog and being like, wait a second. I think we have this album that has Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder singing together. Yeah. And we own it. And we haven't made a video. And we haven't done anything with it. We... What are we doing? So it, it's a funny rock, rock artifact because it's often referred to as a supergroup, as was mentioned up top, but it's, it's really only a supergroup retroactively. Right. And see, for me, I like them because I think about them as like, those are all like the best guys of all those bands together. And that's what that was without thinking about. I think about Green River as pre Pearl Jam, pre Mudhead. Right, right. Like right. I think, it, but like it was hit, it was given to me and the like incorrect. Uh, order. Sequential ways. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, right. right. Yeah. I mean, most people experience all of this out of order. Right, yeah. Um, so this album never gets toured. They play together live a few times, and Soundgarden continues to be Soundgarden, uh, and Jeff and Stone's band becomes, as I said, Mookie Blaylock, and then becomes Pearl Jam. The loudest weekend of the year is back, louder than life in Louisville, Kentucky, with Slayer. Slipknot. Motley Crue, Corn, 
Judas Priest, Disturbed, Five Finger Death Punch, Breaking Benjamin, Evanescence, Falling in Reverse, The Offspring, and so many more. September 26th through 29th in Louisville, Kentucky. Passes on sale now at louderthanlivefestival.com. Okay, so we've covered a whole lot here. We, we've got a radio show turned fanzine that becomes a record label. We've got a record label that helps cohere a scene. We've got a bunch of musicians who plan each other's projects, waiting for the right chemistry to finally sh- show up so they can blow the scene wide open. And because this question that started from Mac, thanks for the letter, this was all about the confusion concerning which band did what and who was the supergroup and who was in it, and here's a small review. Green River is Jeff and Stone before Pearl Jam and Mark before Mudhoney. Got it. Mud Mother Lovebone is Jeff and Stone before Pearl Jam, but after Green Day. Check. Hey, Green River. Green River. <laughs> See, now, now I can't even talk. So Temple the Dog is Jeff and Stone after Mother Lovebone while they're putting Pearl Jam together with Chris Cornell from Soundgarden singing all in the honor of Andrew Wood. And that brings us to the band we haven't talked about, which is Mad Season. The easiest way to keep Mad Season straight from the rest of them is to know that the Pearl Jam connection is not Jeff or Stone. So Jeff or Stone are Green River. Jeff and Stone are Temple of the Dog. But this band does not have Jeff or Stone in it. Right. And this happens after Pearl Jam's blown up. Right. Temple of the Dog's 90. Um, Pearl Jam's 10 is 1991, just like Nevermind. Blood Sugar Sex Magic, <laughs> Black what Album. What a year, what a year. Um, Pearl Jam's Versus is 93, and while they're putting together, they're, they're touring that album, they start working on an album number three that'll become Vitology. Now, the recording of this record is notoriously contentious. Several members will consider leaving the band. It's all pretty rough. And if you go back to episode 63 of our show, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, this is where... Pearl Jam starts a fight with Ticketmaster. This all is happening during this period. So in the middle of all this, Mike McCready has to go to rehab. It's almost very eerily similar as Lars having the press conference about Napster and then from Metallica and then James saying, yeah, I'm going to rehab for three years. Yeah. Um, So a quick reminder on Mike McCready. He is a childhood friend of Stone Gossard who is an excellent guitar player in the vein of guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan. He tried making it in and around the scene for years with no luck and was about to quit pursuing music altogether when Stone called him after Mother Lovebone and asked him to jam with him and Jeff Ammett. And that's when Chris Cornell comes calling and the McCready, Ammett, Gosser trio will play in Temple of the Dog, and then they form Pearl Jam. But now we're several years on. And things are tough. McCready is deep in the drugs. And so he goes to get himself sorted out uh, the other side of the country. And I believe it's Minnesota, maybe. And he meets a guy in rehab named John Baker Saunders. This guy is from a totally different scene, playing blues in Chicago. But he and McCready hit it off and decide when they both get done with rehab to go back to Seattle and try starting a band there. And so, again, this scene... This term was already used in a quote, incestuous, right? It's just all these guys playing with each other. And so they grab a drummer from the scene, a guy named Barrett Martin, who'd been playing with Screaming Trees. And then McCready reaches out to a friend named Lane Staley. And here's a quote from Barrett, that drummer from Screaming Trees. 
That's basically the way it went down. Me and Mike had dinner, and then we jammed with Baker, and then Lane came in by the second session. It was all pretty fast. And Alice in Chains is a band we haven't even mentioned yet, really, in this entire episode. But there's a lot to dig through. And the really brief background you need to know for this story is that at this time, Lane's heroin addiction is really bad that Alice in Chains had temporarily broken up. So McCready and John Baker Saunders are both recovering addicts too. Lots of drugs in this scene. We haven't really said that. It seems like it goes without saying. Seattle scene full of drugs. Pacific Northwest, heroin trade. They, they, they think that what Lane needs is a good influence. He needs to see two guys who are actively trying to kick the habit so that he can understand that it's possible. So they're like, why don't we just invite him in the band? Just a note here, this is not what a professional and licensed drug counselor, <laughs> like the one Metallica paid for every month, would suggest you do in this uh, situation. No, it is not. Another thing not normally suggested, these guys book a show before they have songs. And and somehow it's not terrible. They they literally pretty much walk on stage and work things out on stage. And they're going by this name, the Gacy Bunch. They yeah. decide to take the name of the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy, and smash it together with the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I heard that. That was unfortunate. <laughs> so here's Mike McCready on changing the name later when they realized things were actually getting serious. I got it from a quote. I got it from a term I heard when we were mixing the first Pearl Jam album in England. The people who worked at the studio, they told me the rainy season was upon us, which they called the mad season. This was 1991. And I always kept that in the back of my mind as a cool term. It's when the hallucinogenic mushrooms come. Ah, there it is. See, it's still about drugs. Yep. Uh, season. So remember, I said McCready had all these guitar chops that were way more rooted in guys like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray. Yeah. So he was really into this idea of playing blues adjacent rock with a guy like John Baker Saunders because John Baker Saunders, he got all of his credentials from the Chicago blues scene. Yeah, and they have a lot of fun writing and recording because most of these guys don't get to be main writers in their main bands. And they have the pedigree to put out a record label, a record deal with no issue. And by March of 99, they drop their one and only full-length record, which is Above. March of 95. Oh, March of 95. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, did you get into this band? Initially, no. But... It's that thing where I had the, it's like the Chuck Klosterman thing where he was like, uh, yeah, I made fun of Alice in Chains. And the reality is that Alice in Chains is like the best band, like better than all the other 90s bands. <laughs> so I had to do a revisionist like trip to Mad Season to see really what it was I, because I totally blew it off. I've never liked Lane's voice. I mean, that's just always been my issue with it. Um, but I, I just sort of totally missed Matt's season, uh, you know, because, partly probably because of Lane's association. I, I think they play like six shows together total. They record a song for a tribute album, and then they go back to their core yeah. bands. So it's pretty brief. There's an attempt to work on more music in 1997, but Lane's health and addiction has gotten so bad that he can't participate. So the band brings in Mark Lane again from Screaming Trees because he had always been around, and he was part of the earlier stuff from the band. Were you a Mark Lane again Screaming Trees fan? Um, I became a Mark Lanigan fan after Screaming Trees. I you, you were into solo stuff. Yeah, yeah, because I never was into the band, really. So they make him the singer. They change the name of the band to Disinformation. But given how much these guys have going on in the 90s, they never are actually able to, to make an album. or n Nothing really materializes under that Disinformation name. And then um, drugs, as we've mentioned before, first... It's John Baker Saunders, who we discussed, had entered into the realm from Chicago. He has a heroin overdose, 99. 
And then eventually, of course, Lane passes away in 2002. So here's what I didn't realize. I didn't realize that Lane's last live performance was in 1996. He doesn't die until 2002. So many of these artists, they die at the height of their popularity. Yeah. They're in the middle of the band. You know, Kurt Cobain, of course, very famously. But, you know, lots of artists, it brings the band to a scattering or, or a screeching halt. Lane it was sick for a long time. He was sick basically. for a really long time. And do you know in 96, do you know they that last, those last show he, he had with Alice in Chains? Do you know what tour they got kicked off of? Oh, Remind me. They opened up for Kiss. They were the first act to open up on the reunion tour. And they played here in Louisville, where we're actually recording our episode. And that show is on YouTube, and you can hear them making fun of Kiss, where they they start singing (laughs) Beth and like singing it off key. And they're like, everybody ready for John, Paul, Peter, Gene? And they just start to mix the names together. But yeah, so they got kicked off the tour, and that was the last tour he was on with Alice in Chains. Oh, it is there. There's some deep dive material in the show notes if you want to learn about Lane and what the end of his life was like. It it really is just a very sad story about him losing himself for years and literally wasting away in his apartment and just cutting out everyone. Um, but I think the bottom line for today to to sort of bring this back for Mac is that the Seattle scene grew a whole lot of talent and it cross pollinated. Right, all these guys wanted to play with each other. Probably the clearest and most helpful quote that I ran across when working on this was something that Barrett Martin from Screaming Trees said. Quote, the thing about it was these kind of jams were happening all over Seattle all the time. What would happen was that everybody would be home from touring around the holidays. So we'd go to people's houses and there'd be a Christmas party or a New Year's Eve party and there would just be people jamming. I mean, at one point, I remember there was a party where it was me, Mike, Kim from Soundgarden and I think Mark Arm from Mud Honey started singing, and that was just in somebody's basement. So maybe grunge ended up being pretty authentic after all. I mean, it was people just they were playing music, and back before all this happened, bands weren't um, they weren't they were, I forget what it's called. My brain is dead. They weren't put doing shows in Seattle, like where we live. We live in a, we have. S- Cincinnati and Nashville on either side of us with bigger venues and people just didn't make that that flight or that drive up to Seattle apparently so they were kind of stuck doing it all by themselves they were making had a scene all by themselves in the Pacific oh, because Northwest. they were so far removed they were, that's true I, they were isolated and the heroin trade literally was like coming off of the Pacific coast into that port because it's a port city that you have there. So that's why you have this dark, I mean, I'm like Gen X poster boy grunge everything. <laughs> yeah, That's why everything sounds dark and messed up. Like some of it just sounds, uh, sounds that way is because of where they were located. And it's and it's rainy there. That's great insight. I went to Seattle in 2011, and I was there for three days in September, and it was bright and sunny the entire time. And I was like ready to call my family and move everyone to the West Coast. It was so beautiful. And I remember a couple of Seattle natives saying, "Literally, it hasn't. There haven't been three days of sunshine yeah. <laughs> in a year. Yeah. You you won the jackpot. Don't don't do that. Don't make that move." So here. You know, this is sad, really, this is a sad story in a lot of ways, especially ending with Mad Season. So I thought maybe there's a, a more fun place to end. We talked about Sub Pop's influence and intentionality in, in creating grunge. 
and how people sort of came to hate this term, right? When, yeah. when they were defined by it. I came across this really fun artifact. A 1992 New York Times article called Grunge, a success story. Have you seen this? No. Okay, it's in the show notes. Okay. In this piece, it's about cultural sensation, right? But it's hitting at this time, at the end of 92, where those who have been immersed in this subculture are getting real tired of talking about it. So at some point, this journalist starts trying to find people to talk to, and he goes to Caroline Records, and there's a sales rep at Caroline Records. What's the sales rep's name? Her name is Megan Jasper. Okay, keep going. And she tells them, like in this interview, oh yeah, you know there's like a whole, there's a language for grunge. And she proceeds to make up a oh. glossary of words oh, and terms. That don't exist. That don't exist. <laughs> and the New York Times publishes them. So if, if you want to see this, you can you can see it in the show notes. But they there's a part of this, the lexicon of grunge, breaking the code. All subcultures speak in code. Grunge is no exception. Megan Jasper, a 25-year-old sales rep at Caroline Records in Seattle, provided this lexicon of, gr- lexicon of grunge speak. Coming soon to a high school or mall near you. Oh, this oh. is the New York Times. All right, you ready? Yeah. It, I'm just going to say the term, and you tell me if you think you can define it as okay. our Gen X representative. Okay, you go. Wax slacks. Wax slacks? Is it leather pants? No, it's ripped jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to miss all of them. That's oh, yeah, my bet. Because they're all fake. It doesn't make, yeah. Fuzz. Uh, it, it's grungy guitar? No, no, heavy wool sweaters. Plats. Heavy wool sweaters. What is it? What's the what's plats? Plats. Yeah. Uh, platform shoes. Yeah, platform shoes. I got one. You got one. Ding ding ding. Kickers. Who the hell wears platform <laughs> shoes in grunge? Kick kickers. Uh, uh, guitar pedals. No, heavy boots. Heavy boots. Uh, swinging on the flippity flop. <laughs> oh my god, she made that up. Is that is that a is that a um, a wallet chain? No, that's hanging out. Hey, we're gonna we're just hanging out. Yeah, the flippity. Hey, it's it's Brian and Murdoch. We're just swinging on the flippity flop here on uh, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Bound and hagged, bound and hagged. What does that mean? Uh, um, <laughs> it means you're staying home on Friday or Saturday night. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know what a cob nobbler is? Cob nobbler. Yeah, it's the person who eats a lot of Ambien. No, <laughs> what is it? A loser. Um, oh, cob nobbler. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, Beavis and Butthead. A dish. Is a desirable guy. Yes. Uh, a bloated big bag of bloatation. Is a uh, conservative? <laughs> I was trying to figure out what you said. A drunk. A drunk. Oh. Uh, a lame stain. That one's pretty easy. That's an uncool person. A lame stain. A lame stain. Lame stain. Okay. All right. <laughs> and uh, a rock on is a happy goodbye. Oh, man. There's a few more. You can check them out in the show notes. New York Times, 1992. That poor journalist who I will not tell you the name of that person just to protect them. Just Uh, go ahead to the show notes and you can see the name of that journalist. You can see it for yourself. Uh, Wow, Mac, thank you for the letter. We are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. And remember, we have got an exciting opportunity for you to hang out with us at Louder Than Life Music Festival 2024. The lineup recently dropped. And uh, I mean, it's got Motley Crue on it, Murdoch. That's oh. all. That's all I gotta say. Oh come on! It's got Slipknot. It's got the return of Slayer after five years. They're only playing here in Chicago. Corn, um, Anthrax, Clutch, Judas Priest, Sum Forty One, Tom Morello, Biohazard, Body Motherfucking Count. Uh, 
Seven Dust, Seether, Disturbed, Evanescence. It's it's a hell of a lineup. Uh, but Sponge, so Sponge is playing both their songs. Sponge is like at the very bottom of the lineup. I saw that. I was like, oh my gosh, they hit them down there. Uh, yeah, if you want to go to that music festival, it's uh, in September in our home city of Louisville, Kentucky. And we, yeah, we've got we've already got wristbands to give away. You just have to send us an email. Tell us your best music festival story. Tell us a story about you going to a music festival. We want to hear because you know we. The story guys. We like to tell stories. So tell us a story and you could win tickets. It's that simple. We are the story guys at gmail.com. And you can support the show, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. We appreciate it when you do that too. Get outtakes from the show, extra content, uh, newsletters, etc. And uh, what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.